You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the August edition of the Crestone Eagle. My name is Paula Vaughn. Starting out with the Who We Are column, written by Gussie Fauntleroy. Kizen Laki, Soul of the Eagle, Woman of the Earth. If Kizen Laki had any interest in journalism as a teen, her Southside Chicago High School journalism teacher extinguished it. He was also the typing teacher and, as a holdover of patriarchal conventions in those late 1960s days, he required all the girls to wear hose to class. He inspected their fingernails for perfect polish. He couldn't stand Kizen, and even though she was an excellent student and handed in A-worthy work, he gave her D-minus grades. I was such a non-girl. He gave me terrible grades because I didn't have the proper subservient girly attitude, she says. Then she smiles, remembering how her sister Chris defended her when someone accused her of dropping out of society. Chris said simply, she never dropped in. But she did find other ways to share her unconventional sorry, but she did find others who shared her unconventional ways and places to thrive, like Crestone. This fall, Kizen is stepping back after an unplanned but deeply rewarding 33-year career in journalism, having established the Crestone Eagle in 1986 and developing it into a treasured community resource. She is selling the paper to Crestone Eagle Community Media, CECM, a local nonprofit that will continue what is most appreciated about it while expanding the Eagle's news coverage, geographic range, and online presence. More on this later. Carrying a Heavy Load Not only did Kizen's initial exposure to journalism not spark any passion, but her early years held little hint of the profound connection with nature that has been at the heart of her life and spiritual path for more than half a century. She grew up thoroughly urban in a blue-collar family with two older sisters. Their father worked as a machinist for the city of Chicago. More significantly, their mother suffered from multiple sclerosis and was confined to a wheelchair by the time Kizem was 10. For the next three years, until her mother's death at age 52, Kizen and her sister, still living at home, were their mother's primary caregivers. Kizen gained strengths from the experience, learning to cook, and other practical tasks while her mother directed from her wheelchair. But it was a lot of responsibility on my shoulders at a young age, she says, noting wryly that she's undergone two shoulder replacements in recent years. In keeping with her staunch Lutheran upbringing, Kizen remembers herself as a good girl, a studious bookworm who never really got into trouble. Until later. As a teen, she became a child of the 60s, completely in sync with the counterculture. She attended concerts for the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix, took part in anti-war and civil rights marches, and was protesting in Lincoln Park during the 1968 Democratic Convention when tear gas hurling police in riot gear swarmed the park. At the same time, beginning at age 16, she spent 10 years studying the Ikankar teachings, a mystical approach inspired by Eastern spirituality. It propelled her into an ever-evolving lifelong path that later incorporated earth-based wisdom. 
Underneath, there's always been a quest for self-realization and, and understanding of the grandeur. It's an inner heartbeat of who I am, she says. On her 19th birthday, Kizen married Earl in the top ten of stupidest things I've ever done, she said. And the couple hitchhiked to Las Vegas to attend in a conquer conference, then, then caught a ride to Laguna Beach, California. She soon became pregnant, but suffered a miscarriage at six months and almost died. An infection spread into major sepsis, and she remembers floating outside her body above the VW van on the coast highway as friends rushed her to a hospital. Doctors attached an IV with a new type of antibiotic. It saved her life, but gradually destroyed her hearing. The drug was later discovered to damage auditory nerves. Although she loved the ocean, after her recovery, Kizen told Earl she wanted to go home. So they and a friend headed east. On the way, another life-altering event took place. Stopping in Buena Vista, Colorado, to visit an old family friend of Earl's, they drove into the mountains, Kizen's first time in the Rockies. It was the end of September. The aspens were golden and the sky was this incredible blue like I had never seen, she says. As she sat beside Cottonwood Creek, she found herself sobbing, tears flowing for the first time since her ordeal. I was wounded in my soul, she says. Then, just as unexpectedly, she felt enveloped by an indescribable sense of grace. I said to the guys, you go on. I'm staying. I'm home. Of course, they didn't leave her. They all stayed. They lived as caretakers on a 1,000-acre ranch, and then she and Earl moved into one of a cluster of rustic cabins in Chalk Creek Canyon, which they and other young people rented for $25 a month. They were there seven years, a period Kism was written about in, has written about in her wonderful Mountain Mama stories for the Eagle, which she plans to continue and eventually compile as a book. At Chalk Creek Canyon, she and Earl had a daughter and son, Nakia and Talmuth. It was a labor-intensive life. She hauled water, chopped wood, raised her babies, and kept chickens, a burrow, and goats, although after falling in love with the kid goats and then butchering them for food, she became a vegetarian for 12 years. There was such beauty and joy in that life, and at the same time it was just so damn hard. We were so poor, she says. It took years before she could look back and see the humor in some of it. She divorced Earl, left the canyon, and she and her children moved to Buena Vista. She trained as an EMT, volunteered for the BV and Leadville Ambulance Service, took other courses at Colorado Mountain College, and generally re-entered the world. She completed aviation ground school in Leadville, but couldn't afford flight training, so her dream of flying never took off. In Buena Vista, she met Mike Dennett, a carpenter. They married and had a son, Rama. In 1982, after the Climax molybdenum mine in Leadville cut production and the area's economy faltered, Kizen and Mike and their three children went looking for a new place to live. They heard that Hannah Straw, Strong and her husband, Canadian oil developer Maurice Strong, owned several thousand acres in the foothills just outside the tiny former mining town of Crestone. 
Hannah was looking for young families to help realize her vision of establishing a community of diverse, authentic wisdom traditions and ecologically balanced living. She invited young people from places like BV and Alamosa to present her with a proposal, promising them free land. As it turned out, Maurice was not on board with the idea, so there was no free land. But Kizan and Mike had seen Crestone. They returned the following year, planning to stay a couple of weeks. It was July and glorious, Kizan remembers. Driving up that T-road just felt like coming home. When fall came, they and the three children moved out of a tent and rented a house. Mike helped build the wooden Landisfarne Dome, now part of Crestone Mountain Zen Center, and worked on several of the other spiritual centers being built at the time. They had found their tribe. Almost immediately, Kizan was enlisted by the POA for her EMT skills. She was put in charge of the Baca Ambulance Service. She brought the service from basic life support rating to advanced life support. She served for 12 years before handing off the job to Pam Grip. In 1986, the POA asked her to edit its monthly member newsletter. Needing income, she reluctantly agreed, then discovered she enjoyed it. Before long, she changed the layout and font. She began adding stories not directly related to the POA, but of interest to local folks, including news of a major water grab threat, which the community successfully fought. The POA board wasn't happy about the non-POA news, but POA manager, Petey Lipscomb, liked it. She proposed that the POA sell Kizen the newsletter for $1. Kizen agreed, taking the Eagle's name from one of two newspapers published in Crestone in 1901. She couldn't pay herself a penny for the first three years. When she and Mike divorced, she moved the Eagle office from their home to a small office where the marijuana shop now is, and then to its current downtown building, shared by the Crestone Artisans Gallery. Before long, local resident Janet Woodman noticed that the paper was in serious need of a proofreader. She stopped by to offer help and stayed. An artist herself, she created the Eagle logo design and over the years has done almost every job at the paper other than Kizen's. I'm the front man, and Janet just quietly gets things done. We've made a really good team, Kizen says. The two are now married. For Kizen, putting out the eagle every month has been an expression of dedicated service to the community and an act of co-creation with the community. From the beginning, local residents have contributed writing and photography for free or minimum pay, allowing the paper to continue to grow. Kizen will remain involved through its transition to nonprofit, working alongside new editor John Waters and general manager Jennifer Eichensen for at least the first few months under CECM ownership. Kizen's deep love for this place has also seen her serve for 25 years as a member of Crestone Town Council and as mayor for 10 years. She helped get the Crestone Music Festival going, started the Cabin Fever talent show, and initiated the first community Thanksgiving potlucks and Christmas parties. A favorite accomplishment? She has overseen the planting of at least 70 trees in the town parks and along rights of way. It's no surprise that she quotes the words of the late Bertha Gotterup, beloved local ceramic artist who responded when asked about her religion, I'm standing on it. No surprise either that among Kizen's passions are gardening and getting out in the mountains with Janet in their camper trailer, for which they will soon have more time. 
plus spending time with her three children and five grandchildren. They light up my life, she says. Sitting at the wooden kitchen table in their off-grid log home, one arm in a sling from so shoulder surgery a week earlier, she reflects on what brought her here all those years ago and what keeps her here. Along with the area's extraordinary beauty and quiet, she says, more than anything, it's home. We're always going to have challenges, but I've seen that when we come together over important things, amazing things get done. There's a wellspring of creativity and spirituality that's here, and I'm in love with that. And now turning to Food Bank news written by Marge Hoglund, Food Bank here to help, questions, and answers. When I mentioned the number of people we serve at the Crestone Food Bank, 194 last week, a neighbor recently suggested we might be failing to enforce the rules or letting just anyone come in and get food. The implication, of course, was that food that was that folks were taking advantage. My first reaction was that with any kind of human service offered to the public, there will be a few who will take advantage. But given the difficulty of preventing that, most volunteers or public servants just let it go and focus on serving the remaining 99% who truly need help. But her question raises still more questions, questions that genuinely need to be answered. Who is eligible to come to the food bank? The answer, according to the food bank network of the San Luis Valley, of which we are a member, anyone who is unable to afford adequate food for oneself or one's family is eligible to visit. People are required to register, providing a local address as well as names and birth dates of all members of the household. No proof of income is required. We, in turn, are required to report monthly totals in various categories to the network and to Care and Share Food Bank of Southern Colorado, which provides most of our food. Beyond that, each food bank can make its own rules based on available resources and personal discretion. In Crestone, we serve permanent residents of Northern Swatch County, as well as those who are looking for homes but may be currently homeless and hungry. We do not serve temporary visitors or those who are in town to attend a festival or summer event. Another question, are there limits on how much food one can take? The answer, guidelines are posted about how many non-perishable items from our shelves that an individual shopper may take according to size of household. These numbers are not rigid and depend in part on the size of each can or package. We do not count what each individual takes, but if a volunteer sees someone taking way more than is allotted, that shopper will be gently reminded that we need to ensure that there is enough for everyone in need. Available quantities similarly dictate the amount of produce, dairy, or meat that each visitor may take. If we have received an abundant supply of carrots, for example, and we know we are likely to receive more next week, folks are encouraged to take as many as they think they can use. As supplies for other items, such as frozen meat, have become relatively scarce and expensive for food banks to purchase, we often limit clients to one package per visit. Another question, how often can one visit the food bank? The answer, as long as we are able to maintain adequate inventory, residents are welcome to visit each Wednesday and on the last Saturday of the month. We are unable, of course, to provide for all of a family's weekly food needs, but we are doing what we can to help. Many pantries like ours 
once were called emergency food banks, but this is no longer an appropriate label. In most cases, people who visit are not experiencing a one-time emergency shortfall. Food insecurity, rather, has become a chronic problem, and most, most clients, some 30% of whom are on fixed income, depend on regular assistance to make ends meet. Beginning in the 1970s and 80s, hunger became an acute problem nationwide as a symptom of poverty, rooted in dramatic income inequality, and the situation has only worsened over time. And our final question, if I'm not broke and I come to the food bank, will I be taking food away from those who need it more? The answer. The answer is no, and, once again, we encourage folks needing a little help to overcome the stigma of seeking assistance and to take advantage of our services. Once again, our ability to continue providing these services depends on available resources. We order what we can each month from Care and Share, but supply chain issues, increased costs, and reduced donations have severely impacted what is available from Care and Share. To make up the difference, we rely on our local community. We greatly appreciate donations of healthy food or cash to purchase additional foods as needed. Donations can be mailed to P.O. Box 222, Crestone. Please call 719-849-3859 if you would like to help in any way. And we have this news from Shane Andis. Chautauqua Center opens in Crestone. The Crestone Chautauqua Center is a nonprofit organization that wishes to bring new life to the Chautauqua movement that first arose in 1874. Chautauqua is an Iroquois word with multiple meanings including a bag tied in the middle or two moccasins tied together. The word describes the shape of Chautauqua Lake located in southwest New York. It culminated as places for teaching, entertaining, and social movements. It gives a place for those who would like to share with the community various teachings with respect to all cultures. It played a large role in allowing women of that time to have a place to teach and take stage without limitation. We feel this spirit resonates with Crestone and would like to invite all to take part in whatever capacity they can offer. We are currently using the Quonset Hut attached to Crestone Inn, but we will be looking for grants and philanthropy to aid us in developing a new center with greater capacity to give Crestone some ways to bring some much-needed community functions. At the beginning, we are charging a fee for those wanting a space to utilize, but ideally, we aim to offer grants to those wishing to use the space, as well as bringing in various lecturers or entertainers who could enrich our atmosphere. We also would like to spearhead some children's activities so that our beloved children have more opportunity to experience a variety of things and try to bring some balance to our abundant potential for isolation. Crestone Chautauqua Center is starting with a board of directors that includes Alana Plott, Shane Andes, and Felicia Miralles. The board positions are up for election on three-year cycles, and we hope to expand the board from three to five with potentially a max of seven as the organization needs. Please contact Alana at 303-669-7666 or by email you can reach any of the directors at the email address crestonecc at gmail.com. And we have news from the Artisans Gallery written by Jim Moore. 
Peace Poles, a new look at the Crestone Artisans Gallery. Have you seen the nine new Peace Poles outside the gallery? If you think there are only eight, look closer. Sasha Lovelace's shorter one is holding up a bird bath in the garden. The Peace Poles are the result of a vision that gallery member Lynn Drake had to enhance the look of the outside of the gallery and our area of Little Pearl Park. She, along with volunteer Akia Tanara, applied for an economic and financial grant from the Sawatch County's Living Wisdom CHCP. Many gallery members were thrilled when the grant came through and were excited to be involved in a project of creating peace poles. Nine of our artists each took a pole home and got caught up in the excitement of creating a unique piece of art to be enjoyed by the community. Two other artists participated by creating toppers for two of the poles. Judy Arnold created a ceramic bluebird which lives on top of one of the poles, and Bob Long carved a large Mobius which sits atop another of the poles. And we have clips from the Kirk written by Trish Gilbert, Swatch County Clerk and Recorder. Digital license plates. Digital license plates will soon be permitted on Colorado roads thanks to a new law taking effect in, August, in September. The legislation allows, allowing the plates House Bill 1162 was signed into law by Governor Jared Polis in April. The digital license plate developer, Re Reviver, announced it has complied with state requirements and will begin selling the plates in Colorado when the bill goes into effect. At first glance, digital license plates may look like any metal plate, but should a vehicle be stolen, the plate expired, or an amber alert issued, a digital license plate could become a public safety tool. Under the bill, the Department of Revenue can permit messaging and other functionalities on the digital plates, such as banners, to notify that a vehicle is stolen. The digital plates also offer user security features, such as vehicle tracking, and mean no more replacing registration stickers every year. Colorado will be the fifth state to authorize Reviver's digital license plates for sale and DMV registration, joining California, Michigan, Arizona, and Texas. More than 10 other states are in various stages of adopting digital license plates, according to Reviver. The digital plates are significantly more expensive than metal plates and must be bought directly through Reviver, not the DMV. Reviver's consumer digital license plate costs between $19.95 and $24.95 per month, and those who buy them will still have to buy the traditional metal plates as well. In addition, the digital plates emit a wireless signal used for tracking and digital monitoring services, which has raised some concerns about hacking and data privacy. Under the bill, digital license plates may be used instead of metal plates if the registration number and expiration date are visible from 100 feet away in the sunlight. The digital plate would be at the vehicle's rear. The metal plate would still be required for the front. The plate, uh, sorry, the bill, which takes effect in August this month, passed the legislature with strong bipartisan support, receiving 30 to 5 approval in the Senate and 55 to 5 approval in the House. To reach the Swatch County Clerk and Recorder's Office, please call 719-655-2512. And now taking a quick look at the calendar, Thursday, September 1st, we have the Farm to Table Dinner at Everett Ranch by SOIL Sangre de Cristo and Badger Creek Ranch Community featuring local food and live music. This is from 5 to 8 p.m. on Thursday the 1st. And on Friday, the Seven Peaks Music Festival near Via Grove starts off. Their website is sevenpeaksfestival.com. 
The festival continues through the weekend through Labor Day the 5th. And on Friday, the Early Iron Festival begins in Cole Park in Alamosa. That also continues through the weekend. And as mentioned, Monday, September 5th, is Labor Day. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us for the Crestone Eagle. My name is Paula Vaughn. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.